and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm James Grasby, Building and Landscapes Curator for the National Trust. And in this episode, I'll be recalling the story of what happened when a group of National Trust volunteers turned detective and unwittingly uncovered one of the most fascinating National Trust stories of the last 20 years. The National Trust works with academics who help us dig into our histories. However, every so often, it's our amateur experts who actually uncover some of the most surprising stories. And this was the experience of Mavis Laird, who recalls the discovery she made when she signed up to volunteer at Hewenden Manor. I saw an advert in the local paper asking for stewards at Hewenden Manor. I remember walking in and just being amazed. It was a sunny day, and there were trees everywhere, lovely gardens. Spoke to Ros, the house manager, and um, that was the beginning. To acquaint herself with the story of the house and its famous former resident, Mavis was given a folder. When I opened the folder, it did tell the story of Disraeli. I knew of him, but I'd never actually read about him. I came back home and got my books out and started reading. The story of Disraeli is it's fascinating. And the story of Benjamin Disraeli is best told by Charlotte Clark, Hewenden's senior collections and house manager. Hewenden is a gothic, Victorian-looking building. Parapets, pinnacles, elaborate window surrounds. I walk through this place every day and as you go in, you really get a sense of Disraeli and who he is. So follow me this way. Walking through the inner hall and into the library. We remember Disraeli as a politician today, but not everybody knows that he was an author. He released his first book anonymously and it was initially quite well received. However, Disraeli was revealed then as the author and it was criticised. And the reason it was criticised is because Disraeli had a Jewish heritage, so he was criticised for his religion. And also it was thought that he was making comments on a society that he wasn't a part of. And this was a theme that was to continue throughout Disraeli's political career. His maiden speech is famously a disaster. He can't be heard over all of the name-calling a lot of it kind of anti-Semitic slurs. But despite his treatment, Disraeli becomes Chancellor of the Exchequer three times... The Prime Minister! ..and leads for two terms as Britain's first and only Jewish Prime Minister. He also makes some very influential friends. The bedroom is quite a fitting place to talk about Disraeli's relationship with Queen Victoria. The twin portrait that we can see above the mantelpiece depicts Queen Victoria as a young woman and Albert next to her. Surrounding those here, we've got portraits of all her children, which seems a bit strange for a Disraeli's bedroom. But actually, that was very typical of Victoria, sending portraits of herself and her family. These gifts marked the beginning of a close 20-year friendship. Today, Disraeli is still quoted in Parliament, and as a society, we still feel the benefit of policies he brought in over 100 years ago. He brings in acts for public health, acts against animal cruelty, he abolishes public execution, and he improves sanitation in towns and cities. And from his difficult beginnings as an author, Disraeli becomes one of the highest paid and most anticipated authors in British history. 
by the end of his life, he's an incredibly successful author who really was rivaling the sales of people like Charles Dickens. And this is the story Mavis took pride in telling visitors as they passed through the rooms at Ewenden Manor. You know, people were, knew the name but didn't know the person. So time I'd finished, they knew both. <laughs> That was until, in 2004, a man entered the drawing room at Hewenden who seemed to know even more about the manor than Mavis, and what she learned from him forced her to rethink everything she thought she knew about the manor. I was standing in the drawing room and he said to me, all these pillars weren't here when I was here. And I said, the pillars have always been there. So his son was with him and said, I didn't know you were here. I said to him, please speak to our house manager because she would like to hear further about what happened here. He went and spoke to Ros, the house manager, from the chance remark with him thinking the room had changed, that the story, it just grew and grew like Topsy. The mystery man was called Victor Gregory. And the staff at Hewenden wanted to understand just how he had acquired this detailed knowledge of the manor. So a group of volunteers set out to dig a little deeper. Mary Edwards was one of them. She tracked down Victor, and armed with a tape recorder, she went to investigate more. But there was just one problem. He said, well, look, I'm still under the Official Secrets Act, and so I can tell you about the people, but I can't tell you about any of the work that we did. Mary managed to track down Gillian Picken, who as a child lived at the manor around the time Victor was there. Her father was head of security, and in Mary's recording, Gillian recalls what it was like to live among the toings and froings of Hewenden's clandestine operation. Interspersed with this private accommodation were offices of the people that were working there. There was always so much going on there, so many people toing and froing. My sister and I would play in the cellar. There are all these mounds of paper which made wonderful places to um, play hide-and-seek. We never went into the offices. I can't ever remember anybody saying, you must not go in there. There was nothing there that would attract five, six, seven-year-olds, so we just let it be. The team had started to piece together the mystery at Hewenden. But to fill in the gaps, they needed information from a more official source. They applied to the MOD for the Official Secrets Act to be declassified. And after months of waiting, their request was granted, and Victor Gregory could finally talk. I, Victor George Gregory, wish to introduce myself and recall the period between 1941 and 1945, when the Manor House was taken over by the Air Ministry to produce secret target maps for RAF Bomber Command. The year is 1941. Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg and France are occupied by Nazi forces, providing them with a formidable front line to launch an attack on Britain. With the English Channel the only barrier between British soil and, according to Hitler, the imminent invasion of England, Britain was on edge. But with the German threat stalled by their loss of aerial superiority in the Battle of Britain and from the sustained bombing of British cities during the Blitz, Hitler's invasion of Britain seemed less imminent. 
He then did something which may have completely changed the trajectory of the war. Here's Dr. Dan Ellen, the International Bomber Command's digital archivist. The Luftwaffe were not going to be able to defeat the RAF. Russia seemed to be the, the way to go. They diverted all of their manpower and material to the Eastern Front. This strategy could have given British forces an opportunity to invade Western Europe, but at this point in the war, a land or sea offensive was impossible. The British army had left behind an awful lot of material on the beaches of Dunkirk, and it needed to build itself back up again. It was the job of the Royal Navy to protect the ships that were coming in convoys across the Atlantic. The only way there was of continuing the war was through air power. At the time, the Air Ministry oversaw all aerial activity. Under its umbrella was Coastal Command, fighting the war in the Atlantic, and Fighter Command, in those iconic Spitfires defending British airspace. And then there was Bomber Command. It was only Bomber Command that had the capacity to lead the aerial offensive and take the war to Germany and to attack enemy facilities. The Air Ministry needed to understand the effectiveness of their bombing campaign so far, and for this, they commissioned the Butt Report. Although the air crews were coming back and saying that they'd seen the bombs go and hit the target, the Butt Report looked at over 600 photographs taken over June and July 1941. They carefully analysed where the bombs were actually falling. The story the Butt Report told was in complete contrast to the reports from bomber crews. It read, Of those aircraft recorded as attacking their target, only one in three got within five miles. Over the French ports, it was two in three. Over Germany as a whole, the proportion was one in four. In some cases, depending on weather conditions and visibility, accuracy was as low as 1 in 15. At that point in the war, the the bombing offensive was quite haphazard. A target would be sent down to the squadrons, to the RAF stations, and they would pretty much choose their own route and they would navigate to what they thought was the target because they were using a map and a stopwatch still using sextants and taking star shots to work out where they were. Although the air crew would come back and said, we saw our bombs go down on the target, quite often they were bombing what they thought was a target, but they could be tens of miles away from where they were meant to be bombing. Even though the bombing offensive may sound like it relied on luck rather than science, it was in fact based on cutting-edge surveillance technology. In and around the Buckinghamshire market town of High Wycombe, were a cluster of facilities gathering vital target intelligence. There was Bomber Command headquarters in High Wycombe itself, and close by was RAF Benson. From RAF Benson, reconnaissance planes equipped with 3D cameras would fly into enemy-occupied territory and capture images of suspected military targets. A few miles to the south of Bomber Command headquarters was RAF Medmanham, where these aerial reconnaissance photographs were analysed. It was at this facility that some of the most important discoveries of the Second World War were made. They were able to spot things like V1 and V2 sites. It was a very robust system, yeah, it was groundbreaking. The one step that was missing still at this point was being able to successfully navigate to the targets. And of course, for proper navigation, Even with the systems that they developed, you need to have accurate maps. 
Bomber Command needed to find a location to make these maps. It needed to house hundreds of personnel, offices, photographic and cartography studios, and also to be close to Bomber Command, RAF Benson and RAF Medmanham. There was only one place that fitted the bill. Hewenden Manor. Victor Gregory again. In many ways, Hewenden Manor was an ideal choice for this type of secret work. Located away from the main road and hidden behind trees and woods. Hewenden Manor was requisitioned and codenamed SPC Hillside. Our challenge at SPC Hillside was to revise from aerial photography and to produce and print specially designed target maps for bomber crews on daylight and nighttime raids. Once Hewenden had been identified as the location for SPC Hillside, the RAF wasted no time staffing the facility. Here's Fritha Irwin, a volunteer at Hewenden, who helps research the Hillside story. We had a mixture of service personnel at Hillside, Royal Air Force, Women's Royal Air Force, but there were also a number of civilians who worked there, an architect, there were artists, there were cartoonists. Not many of them had had previous cartography experience. So it was quite an interesting mixture of people. And the artists used a surprisingly low-tech method of cartography. They would identify the key elements of the target, trace the various elements of the map. Volunteer Bernie Nill, who also helped to research the hillside story. They would then go from there to the print room, and every night a couple of lorries would transport them about three miles up the road to the underground bunker where Air Marshal Harris coordinated and orchestrated the entire bombing campaign. And from there, the maps were distributed to about 58 different airfields all around East Anglia, Lincolnshire, Southern Yorkshire, etc. The rooms were stripped of the antique books and the paintings of royalty from Disraeli's time at Hewenden and replaced with office furniture, printing equipment and rows and rows of artists' easels. We've just entered into the main exhibition space, which would have been one of the drawing offices here where the map makers worked during the Second World War. Charlotte Clark, Hewenden's senior collections manager again. We've got it set up as they would have had it. So here is one of the target maps that were created here at Hewenden. We've got different colours, so we've got magenta, we've got darker magenta lines, white squiggly lines running through. And this is all overlaid with concentric circles and lots of numbers and letters. As the war progressed, so did the navigational technology available to bomber crews, with systems like radar, radio navigation, and new aviation hardware like the Halifax and Lancaster bombers. These were big four-engined heavy bombers that could carry a massive payload. They were also the platforms for these new navigation systems such as H2S. H2S was a ground radar system that created an image of the ground below the aircraft on a monitor screen. The maps for that are very bizarre things. They're all funny shapes and blocks of purples and reds and dark brown colours that correspond to the image that the navigator could expect to see on their screen. 
Despite these incredible advances in technology, maps were still of vital importance to the navigator to be able to find the target. These maps also played a significant role in one of Bomber Command's most controversial tactics. 1941, Bomber Command, they would attack military targets, docks, places like that. Throughout the war, the RAF also dropped propaganda leaflets. The message was, this is a leaflet today, it could be a bomb later on. But shortly after the Butt Report, the warnings in these leaflets became a reality as Bomber Command changed its tactics. In 1942, there was another report that looked at the effects of German bombing on British cities during the Blitz, and it calculated that an effective way of taking the fight to Nazi Germany would be to bomb industrial centres, to destroy the factories and to destroy the homes the civilian workers lived in. And this was known as the de-housing policy. They deliberately targeted large German cities with large civilian populations and they deliberately created firestorms. The high explosive bombs that they dropped blew the roofs off the buildings and exposed the wooden frames and the timbers. And then the incendiary bombs that they dropped set fire to those. Occasionally these, these created firestorms. Attacks on places such as Hamburg and Cologne. Tens of thousands, up to 40,000 people were killed in one night by, uh, by the bombing. The map makers were very well aware of the consequences of the maps that they were making. Volunteer Fritha Irwin again. One map maker, a lady called Kathleen Hudson, said that when she completed a map, she used to send up a little prayer and say, please God, miss the children. So she was very aware of it. They all were. But I think they balanced that by realising that it was the only way at that time to try and stop the awful carnage that was going on. People always talk about Bletchley Park. I think the work done creating the maps is, is another important story that helped in the war effort and people should know about. I first heard about it a couple of years ago. I've been researching Bomber Command for for quite some time and it's not often told, it's not often spoken about. Hewenden Manor is now a property that tells two stories. The story of Benjamin Disraeli and now in a newly opened exhibition, the story of Hewenden's contribution in the Second World War. And while the story of SPC Hillside would likely have been released via routine declassification, if it wasn't for the interaction between a volunteer and a visitor, the colourful and personal detailed stories of people that worked at SBC Hillside would likely have been lost to the sands of time. In making this recording, I have tried to recreate the life and times for all concerned with Uinder Manor during the war years 1941-1945. I hope that it will assist in the Living History Project and offer my best wishes for the future. Ex-Sergeant Victor George Gregory, RAF. P.S. 
During my time at the manor house, there were no trees on the front lawn. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, remember the National Trust has a huge resource of audio programmes, which you can find at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. To make sure you get new episodes of this podcast, follow or subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, do leave us a review to let us know what you think of the show. We'll be back soon with a new episode. But for now, from me, James Grasby, goodbye. Goodbye.